0: So, thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning. 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 Wow, it's good to see Mike. Did you get to share your testimony? Oh, he had an operation this week. And uh, Lord blessed you, didn't he? Yeah, you look good. Wonderful, wonderful. We're very thankful for that. Uh, We want to continue our prayers for the things that are happening around the world, of course. Um, It's not just in Ukraine that that is a a terrible thing happening in our world. There's a lot of suffering in our world. We want to keep people in prayer. Um, And there's a lot of good things that happen, too. And um, so this morning, we're going to talk about something called the three sanctuaries. And before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're very thankful for our children's story. We're thankful for our opportunity to give. We're thankful for the, the, the ministry of music and how we can all be a part of that and join and do it together to give you the praise that you are worthy of. And right now, Father, we want to continue to lay this service in your hands, asking that you would be honored and uplifted. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 So we're going to be looking at these three sanctuaries, as you know, we have been studying the sanctuary, and we're going to look at these three, the wilderness tabernacle in the time of Moses, Uh, of course, that was made out of garments, it was something that moved about 50 times in the Old Testament, right, Uh, before they built Solomon's temple, this moved, so it was portable. And then Solomon's temple became a very permanent temple. Uh, That was destroyed, and then Zerubbabel's temple, and I put Herod's here, uh, because that was the ne- kind of the name of the temple in the time of Jesus. And Herod had embellished it quite a bit. And so there's that temple, but there actually is a temple in heaven. And in the book of Revelation, it mentions the temple of God many times, but it's never in reference to an earthly one. It's always in reference to the heavenly temple. Now what we're going to notice is that all three of these temples share some things in common. Do they all have a candelabra? The seven-branch candlestick, they all have that. They all have a table of showbread. Is this true? Okay, they all have an altar of incense and a most holy place. Two compartments, a holy place and a most holy place. And actually, in all of them, there is Ten Commandments. There's an ark of a covenant. But there's differences, too. And that's what we're going to cover, what the differences are and why that's important. So, So, when we think about this sanctuary... One of the things, when we look at the furniture, the furniture, the structure of the sanctuary, is to teach us what we're to become. Okay? What we're to become. So when we look at right here, we look at the courtyard. The first thing it tells us is that we need to be what? A penitent sinner. We need to give our sins to Christ. That's really the first thing we really need to know about ourselves, which is accepting the fact that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And what I need to become is a penitent sinner. I need to be a someone who's willing to give my sins to Christ in need of a Savior. But the sanctuary goes on and tells me more about what I need to become. I need to become candelabra. I need to become a shining light for Jesus, right? This is part of who I need to be. And before I accepted Christ as my personal Savior at the age of 20, I wasn't shining for Jesus. I was just shining for myself, right? I was simply reflecting the world. But once you become a Christian and once you start studying the sanctuary, the sanctuary, the structure tells us what we're to be, what we're to become. Not just slights, but we're also table of showbread. We're to all be students of God's word. Is this right? Before I met Jesus, I wasn't studying the Bible. But after meeting Jesus, I knew that part of who I need to become was a person who loved the study of the Bible. Didn't just simply see it as a duty, but a love to hear from God's word. What I'm supposed to also to become is a person of prayer, right? To intercede for other people. It's not just about me praying for my needs, but to be involved in people's lives and mingle with people so you can intercede and pray for others. This is all part of what we're to become. Penitent, repentant people who shine for Jesus, study the Bible, how often? Every day and intercede and pray. But the the Bible story, the sanctuary structure tells me I also need to become a commandment keeper, right? So before meeting Jesus, I wasn't keeping the commandments. I was only breaking the commandments. But now accepting Christ and now walking into this sanctuary by faith, trying to study, what am I supposed to be? What do I do now that I've accepted Jesus? And the most holy place tells me, well, Jeff, you need to learn to start keeping the commandments, but I'm going to be the one that writes them on your heart and in your mind. Is this correct? And it also teaches me with the manna inside, and God gave the manna... To teach them to trust Him, right? They weren't supposed to take a two-day supply, except on Friday. But if they got extra, it all spoiled because they needed to learn to trust God. And so this is one of the biggest lessons we need to learn. Who am I supposed to be? A person who trusts God. Now, almost every Bible story is about that theme. Whether they really trusted God or lost their trust or their trust kind of wavered. Whether we're looking at Abraham and Sarah or whatever story you're looking at. So much of it is about trust. And then, of course, there is the uh, Aaron's rod. And as we studied a couple of Sabbaths ago, Aaron's rod really points to the spirit of prophecy. That we're supposed to follow the one that God had anointed or had chosen. Which in our time, God has chosen a servant. The Lord's servant is Sister White. And through her, uh, he has given great light. And let me illustrate it this way. When you look up in the sky, you see stars, right? Are there more stars there than you see? Now, if I took a telescope and I looked through that telescope, I'd see more stars. But the stars were already there. So the Bible is where you first look. And the only reason God gives us the spirit of prophecy is so that we can see more stars. So we can see more that's there. It's not replacing anything. It's not adding anything. It's helping us see what we weren't able to see on our own. Okay, does that make sense? So I should become a student of the spirit of prophecy. And, of course, the reason I'm in the holy place is this is where Jesus went. You're always to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Is that right? Okay. Now, the services. So the structure told us what we're to become, who we're to become, Or what we're to become. But the services, the burnt offering, everything they did in the the tabernacle is how we become. For example, this penitent sinner. He came to the door, or this veil, because this is part of a service. And he goes there and he prays over the head of the lamb and the priest is there. And the priest will take the bowl and as part of the service... He goes in and applies the the blood in the four horns of the altar and sometimes sprinkles it before the veil, depending on what the offering was. This is a service. This isn't structure. It's a service using the structure. And as we study the services of the sanctuary, it tells us how to become a Christian. It's teaching us how to be what we're supposed to become. Okay, And so uh, we'll get into that in another sermon. And then here's another. So the service of how? How to become a penitent sinner? Well, I bring my sacrifice. I accept Jesus as my sacrifice. How do I become a light? We'll talk a little bit about it now. How do I become a light for Jesus? I have to be filled with what? The oil. And that would be filled. That was part of a service. They would fill the oil. Uh, they would eat this bread. and It would have to be replaced, but it would have to be eaten. Um and then, of course, the incense, that I always make sure that my prayers are ascending with the merits of Jesus Christ. So every every service that they did in the structure was teaching me how to become what I need to be. Okay, But all this is pointless unless everything we do is focused on the who's in the sanctuary. Because you can have a structure, and you can have services. But without the who, Jesus, it means nothing. The Hebrews spent a lot of centuries, a lot of generations, and they had a structure. They daily had services, but they didn't know him. And so it almost became pointless in a way. It wasn't going to save them. The structure can't save them. The service can't save them. It's who the structure and the service points to, which is Jesus. Jesus alone can save them. And it's about putting all of it together where it all draws us back to Christ. Okay. So let's go back to, and we'll get back to that towards the end of the sermon. But I want to now look at these three sanctuaries. So in Exodus 25, 8 that Patience read, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So there's man's part and there's God's part. Man's part was, let them make me a sanctuary. Who made the sanctuary? God didn't build the sanctuary for them. Men had to make the sanctuary. What's God's part? He would dwell with them. You make me a sanctuary for my abiding and I will dwell with you. And, of course, as we can see, this is going to have reference back to us, right? But man, of course, only could do it because God supplied everything. But when God says, I will dwell among you, what's he really mean? In us. And this is what Paul said. I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The very purpose of having them build a sanctuary was for them to look upon it and see the possibility of him dwelling in them. Unless this was achieved, the real purpose of the sanctuary is absolutely lost. So for generations, they saw, they visually saw every day a sanctuary built by men. All of us are built by men, aren't we? We're all born of a woman. We all have an, earth, we're an earthly structure. And the earthly tabernacle was simply an earthly structure. And, but it had God's presence. And so when God's Shekinah glory was in the temple made, of by, made by men, that was an illustration for them to look at, not just to say, oh, God's in the sanctuary. If that's all they ever got out of it, They missed the point. The fact that God was dwelling inside that sanctuary made by men was simply to teach them that you and I are made of human flesh. And that God needs to what? He needs to dwell in me. That I can't just have an outward form of religion. The only thing that would make it real It's if God's presence is in me. That's what changes my life. The structure doesn't change it. The service doesn't change it. Only as it's done in connection to Him, who's real, right? Let's move on. Now, let me just, that last point. What happened, I think, to the Jewish people, as they knew God was with them, they knew the Shekinah glory was in the, Tabernacle. But by not understanding that needed to be them, their God just became a national God. Does that make sense? And I think that's what's going to happen at the end of time with the Sunday laws. When you read Revelation 13 and the Mark of the Beast and everything, there's nothing in that chapter that talks about personal salvation. There's nothing about the Holy Spirit being in a person and being changed in the likeness of Christ. It's all about pushing religion and forcing people and you can't buy and sell. It's all about nationalism. But if your God's only a national God, that won't save you. Which is exactly why all who take the mark of the beast will wind up in the lake of fire. Because the only thing that's going to save us is if this very God who gave the blueprint is actually in us. So men made the sanctuary, but they didn't come up with a design and the materials. God provided all this, right? So God told them, he gave them the design, For see, say he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. So they had a pattern. Even the materials which they got coming out of Egypt, right? They came out with all those precious things of Egypt. And it says here in Exodus 35, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone... Whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. And for all his service. And for the holy garments. And everything that was made. Whether it was that golden candelabra or whatever was made. The people gave and God had provided. But they gave what God had given them. So God provides the design. God provides the materials. God even provided the talent, didn't he? See the Lord hath called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah he hath filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and all manner of workmanship and God had blessed certain people to actually build the candelabra to make the sanctuary and gave them special skills because they didn't possess them at the time So God provides the pattern God provides the material God provides the talent, and God then uses people to make the earthly tabernacle. So, God did not build the earthly sanctuary. Finite men built it by God's direction. Materials for the sanctuary were from the cursed ground, and I want to emphasize this point. Because it's really important for the illustration of the Bible here. The ground has been cursed, hasn't it? It says here, right in Genesis, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shall thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So, men had a design. They were to build it. Men had a design, and all the materials they would use were from this cursed ground, which means that they're temporal, temporal, right? They're not eternal materials. Okay? It was important that this sanctuary should be built from materials upon which the curse of sin rested. God could have provided sinless materials from heaven, but then the lesson would have been lost. It would be completely different. If they're sitting there in the wilderness and all this material start coming down to heaven that was not part of a fallen world, and then they built material out of that, we would never understand the illustration. The illustration had to be built from things, from this cursed ground. From this fallen world. And so if men who are what? Fallen. Fallen men. Building a tabernacle. Made out of cursed material. And yet God would dwell in it. Is that hope for me? Because I'm born of fallen parents. My body is destructible, but you know something—it's okay. All that matters is whether God's spirit is in me. It doesn't matter what my body looks like. All that matters is that God dwells in me. And we live in a world where everything's so much outward show. People are trying to even did that with the temple. It became a very outward thing, and what God's really looking for is what's inside. Is what's inside. God is able to dwell in corruptible man, for a corruptible man to inherit an incorruptible body, he must have the infinite God within him. And the Bible says, "Which which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Paul would even talk about how corruption cannot inherit incorruption. And that's true. Without Jesus living in here, we could never have an incorruptible body. But even though I have a corruptible body, I can have an incorruptible one. Why? Only because of Jesus who would dwell in us. He's the answer. As a sanctuary is built by fallen men, we are born of fallen parents. As the materials of the sanctuary came from the sin cursed ground, our bodies are corruptible and subject to death. We are earthly, God is heavenly. We are imperfect, God is perfect. We are finite, God is infinite and eternal. And the combination of the human and the divine is what prepares us for heaven. And this is why all the world religions that focus on works can never work. You're going to improve something made of corruption? and inherit incorruption? That's not possible. The only way you and I can receive eternity is if there is us who is corruptible. We can't... That's just the fact. That's what we are. Are combined to Him who is incorruptible. That's the only hope of eternal salvation. Okay? And so you have religions that are focused so much on work... If you do so many Hail Marys, if you do so many of this, so many of the sacraments or other kinds of religions that do the exact same thing. And we have to be careful as Seventh-day Adventists. is not to start thinking, well, if I can just grit my teeth and keep all ten commandments, I'm going to make it to heaven. Because the reality is, we only keep these commandments because His righteousness is in us. That's the combination of the human and the divine. I can't make myself keep the commandments in my own strength. Corruption cannot keep the Ten Commandments. But his incorruptible life that he lived in our corrupted flesh, dwelling in me, allows me to change. It's a change that's happening within. The best example of the combination of the human and divine, which we just looked at, in the sanctuary where you have a corruptible temple, so to speak, with an incorruptible God's presence. But the best example is what? Is Jesus himself. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So what John is saying here, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was God. Who's this? This is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. All things were made by Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. Imagine that. The Father creating the entire universe through His Son. But notice this. And the Word was made what? Flesh. Some translations would talk about how He and dwelt among us, or He tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus perfectly illustrated the combination of human and divine. By becoming one of us, he became fully human. But he always was the Son of God. And he was born of the Spirit. And so we had this illustration, because the whole sanctuary pointed to Christ. The sanctuary itself pointed us to a sanctuary made of corruptible things, but God's presence. Jesus comes in our fallen nature, bodies, Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Born of a woman, but also born of the Spirit. And always walked in the Spirit. Human and the divine. Human and the divine. Why is that important? Let's look at this. As fallen men built the sanctuary, so Christ was born of a woman. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partake. Partook of the same flesh and blood. But he was born of the spirit. And so he becomes again that perfect manifestation of the human and the divine. And here it says in the faith I live by. Why did Jesus do this? Taking humanity upon himself. He came to this earth. And by a life of obedience showed that God has not made a law that man cannot keep. He showed that it's possible for man to perfectly obey the law. Those who accept Christ as their savior becoming Partakers of his divine nature are enabled to follow his example, living in obedience to every precept of the law. Jesus came here, number one, to honor his Father's name. Satan had so misrepresented God's character that Jesus came to show us the Father. That alone would be a great reason for coming. But Jesus also came to live a perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But Jesus did something more. He became a perfect example of how a person, though born with this fallen flesh, with God's presence, could live a life in perfect obedience to all of God's Ten Commandments. Is that right? He becomes that perfect illustration so we see the illustration played out in the sanctuary, which points to Jesus. And then Jesus, all of a sudden, he comes on the scene, and he demonstrates that in his life. So let's look at this, Herod's Temple now. Both are made by fallen human beings, right? Here's the portable sanctuary. Here the, is the permanent structure. Made of a sin-cursed earth, right? Both. Made according to a pattern, is that right? God's kind of glory was, in, was present in the one in the wilderness. But in Herod's temple, that's the difference. What a difference though. That singular difference, everything else is the same. But that singular difference is an eternal difference. Because Herod's temple would represent an unconverted state. You can have a structure. You can have services. But without God's presence, there's no life in it. And the wilderness tabernacle would represent a converted state. You got the structure, you got the services. But more important, you got God's presence. What a difference between the two. But what was wrong with Herod's temple? From great controversy, the disciples had been filled with awe and wonder at Christ's prediction of the overthrow of the temple and they desired to understand more fully the meaning of his words. Herod the Great had lavished upon it both Roman wealth and Jewish treasure. And even the emperor of the world had enriched it with his gifts. Massive blocks of white marble of almost fabulous size from Rome for this purpose, formed a part of its structure. And to these, the disciples had called the attention of their masters, saying, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. What's wrong with this picture? The whole focus was the outward. The outward. It's exactly where our world is today. Focus is on the outward. Let's look at the inside. Jesus found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful on the outside, but corrupted on the inside. It would be better If the outside still needed some work, like me, I need some work. But what's important is the inside. That is the most important, is on the inside. Moses' sanctuary illustrated a converted state. God was present. Herod's temple illustrated an unconverted state. Who was present? It really, God and Satan can't occupy the same spot. Is that right? The materials were the same. It was all made by human hands, both of them. The only difference was who occupied this space. Who occupies this mind? Where are my thoughts? Do you know that if my thoughts tend towards enjoying violence and crude jesting and immorality. Who's who am I giving opportunity to take up residence in this temple? Is that a fair statement? Everything depends on your thoughts. Because with your thoughts you're determining who occupies this temple. And this is why we have very little time left, friends. I firmly believe that. It doesn't matter what shape your body's in right now. It Doesn't even matter where the turned in of your thoughts have been for the last 20 years. What matters is what happens from today on. The spirit of Satan has to be taken out. And I'm not suggesting someone here is demon-possessed or anything. But what I am saying As we've got to be careful not to have structure and religion and know Jesus in our life. Because what's actually more important is the spirit of Jesus in us. And to have the spirit of Jesus is to have the mind of Jesus. And to have the minds of Jesus is to have the thoughts of Jesus. And that's what gets us to see people and treat people differently is because we have the mind of Jesus. Which is how we invite him to take residence in this temple. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, this seems a little strong, you're of your father, what? The devil. the devil. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and bowed not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he's a liar and the father of it. Some speakers would go so far and say that when we're born, we have the spirit of Satan. When I look at a baby, I see it as a being." Fairly innocent, but they have a fallen nature. But what they need is Christ's spirit in them. They're just a body made of corruption, corruptible seed. And the most important thing, our little Julia, who was born May 16th, she's got a body, but she needs God's spirit in her. That will be the most important thing for little Julia. Is to know Jesus. Nothing will be more important for her little life than that. No matter how her body turns out. It's the spirit inside of her. And that's the job of parents. And grandparents. And every member's influence on one another here. Is to help one another have more of the spirit of Jesus in us. These Pharisees, they all came from the lineage of Abraham. And that's why they thought their body, so to speak, was better than everybody else's. My father's Abraham. But they still just had a corruptible body, right? (laughs) Even the high priest, Caiaphas. All he had was flesh and blood. There wasn't anything special about his body just because he was a Jew. What mattered was whether he accepted Jesus. That's all that mattered. And of course in our society with all the racism. Some people think they have a better body than somebody else. How foolish is that? Think about it. How foolish. Huh. Nicodemus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is what? It's just, it's just a fact. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. You know, Nicodemus, and kind of going back and forth with Jesus a little bit, can a man again be born in his mother's womb? Well, what if he could? What difference would it make? Well, maybe I'd make better decisions. I'm going to try to get reborn again in my mother's womb. Hopefully I'll make better decisions. Is he going to? Without Jesus? No. It's the same fallen flesh. Flesh is flesh. So don't complain about your flesh. I know none of us chose to be born in a fallen world. But here we are. But we have this one opportunity in life. Even though we're born of this fallen flesh and no other world's like this. We have a privilege. Because Christ became part of this flesh that we can now be part of His Spirit. We can take on His nature, character-wise, in this flesh. And that's the beautiful way that we can praise God in our life, is that even though we have this fallen flesh, we can give honor to God every day by our choices that are in harmony with the choices Jesus made. You know, day by day, choice by choice, Jesus lived a life for us, that we could have never lived in this flesh that by the power of that same holy spirit that was in Jesus we can no matter what our flesh is when nicodemus, nicodemus did need to renew a new birth but it wasn't a physical new birth it was a spiritual a spiritual new birth so let's look at these three temples Look at the difference of this last one. It's amazing. But in Moses and Herod, we have made of human beings, fallen human beings, made of fallen human beings, and what? Could you imagine? We can't see it right now. The only thing we've ever seen, so to speak, is a temple made with human hands. Could you imagine what this temple looks like, made by God? It's going to be amazing, friends. Made of sin cursed earth, made of sin cursed earth, made of eternal materials. Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard. You imagine how beautiful this temple is. This is the temple we want to be in, isn't it? Made according to the pattern, made according to the pattern. It is the pattern. God's Shekinah glory was there. God's Shekinah glory. There was a light. Between the two jer- cherubim above the mercy seat. God's presence. No presence. God himself. Not in a burning bush. Not by cloud by day or fire by night. Not some Shekinah glory above a mercy seat. But God himself, his person will be in this temple. This is why it's important for us to talk about the sanctuary because it's it's where we want to experience this. We don't have any choice here, right? We're just simply made of the earth. That God can be in us preparing us for this. Wow. Often we spend time talking about what is in the sanctuary, which is important. But what's more important is who's in the sanctuary. We need to spend more and more time talking about who's in the sanctuary. And I think this might be my, one of my last ones here. And the reason is. As illustrated in the sanctuary. The penitent sinner would bring his lamb. And on his knees. He'd lean with all his weight. Confessing his sins upon the forehead of the lamb. He'd take the knife. And he'd take the life of the lamb. But it was the priest that caught the blood in a bowl. And it was the priest that would go from there. And apply the merits of this, this blood. Into the sanctuary or on the altar of burnt offerings, and then into the holy place itself, sprinkling upon the veil. But the penitent sinner, once he'd taken the the life of the lamb, that was all he was going to do in the sanctuary. And he never got in the sanctuary, he was just in the courtyard. That's all he could do. But more had to be done. And the rest that had to be done was not something he did, it was something the priest had to do for him. It's not enough for me just to confess. I have to have an intermediary. I need to have a mediator, Jesus, who appropriates his shed blood for me. So when I think about the holy place, and Jesus walked into the holy place, and I think of the menorah, the seven-brands candlestick, I need, what do I need to become? A light for Jesus. But what do I have to remember? I have to be filled with oil. And I have to remember that Jesus is there. I have to remember that when I go out and try to shine, Jesus has to be with me. I can't witness by myself and be effective. Jesus says, I'll be with you always. Even when we study the Bible, we should make sure that Jesus is there. Because here's, here's just a plain fact. The table of showbread is in the holy place in heaven. But I'm not there. But who is? You ever studied the Bible without thinking about Jesus? We shouldn't. We should be mindful of his presence as we study. You should see and I should see Jesus as our true Pastor. Leading us through a Bible study of the Bible. This is what makes it real with Jesus. That I don't just have structure and don't just have furniture. Everything I do in the sanctuary must be alongside with Jesus. Jesus present with me studying the Bible. Jesus, altar of incense. Jesus and me praying together. I can pray for people. But it's not my prayers that change things. It's only as I pray in communion with him and my prayers are mingled with his merits because I have no merits of my own that my prayers become effectual. Is that true? And then, and I think this is the last one. I keep promising this is the last slide. But anyway, the Ten Commandments. I can try to keep them. But the reality is when I think about the Ten Commandments and obedience, what I really ought to be thinking about is my communion with Christ and receiving His righteousness. Because He already kept them in this flesh. He's not asked me to do what He did as if it hadn't been done. He's already done it for us. And so in keeping the commandments, what we're really doing is receiving His life. So if I have a problem with patience, or a problem with impatience, I should say, What do I do? What does this corruptible person do? Make myself patient? What do I do? I have to receive his impatience. He's already been patient in this fallen flesh, he's already loved and died for his enemies in this fallen flesh. What I need to do is say, Father, this person's really bothering me, I have these ill feelings. Let me have your love for this person. May I receive, I can't make myself more loving. What I can do is receive his love for that person because I know Jesus loves him because he he died for him. Obedience comes by receiving who Jesus is. So the whole concept of keeping the Ten Commandments without Jesus is going to be an endless failure. It's all in relation to Christ. The manna, trusting, trusting God is about thinking about what Jesus has already done for us. If he's already died for me, can I trust him that he'll get me through this situation? Amen. And lastly, Aaron's rod there, as we saw referring to the spirit of prophecy in our previous study, is that when I pick up a spirit of prophecy book, whether it's Desire of Ages or whatever, Again, I want to have the mindset that I want Jesus to be front and center. And I want him to be, along with the Holy Spirit, as my teacher. But I know the Holy Spirit's going to teach me about Jesus in this. And so as we read, we're always looking. What is this telling me about who Jesus is? Tell me about his character. Which is ultimately telling me about who I can become. Right? Because we're to put on Christ. So basically, in closing the sanctuary, the structure tells us what we're to become. The service is how we become. But ultimately, none of it means anything unless we're following him who is in the sanctuary. Because he's the one that makes it real. So I want to encourage each one of us to find a time every day to just go through the sanctuary step by step and allow Jesus to become Real. As we make him first, most, and best in our life. And as we draw closer to him, we will draw closer to one another. And this is how we help others in the world who are caught in darkness, that come out of darkness and become part of his marvelous light. By how we live and by whose spirit is in us. Before we have our closing prayer, our closing hymn,